Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Today marks one year since the first COVID-19 vaccines became available in Colorado. And the vaccine said to people, we have a way out of this now. On today's show, we hear from a leading public health expert about the path of the pandemic in the last year and what could be ahead in the next. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. For the first time in 20 years, Colorado is getting a new seat in Congress. Population data from the 2020 census led to the addition, but it will be a year before voters elect who they want to represent the new 8th Congressional District. The buzz is building, and some are already predicting this seat could dramatically change public policy in Colorado and the nation. KUNC's Scott Franz has more. Bob Beaupre knows the pressure and opportunity a new congressional seat can create. He was the first to serve the 7th district in the Denver suburbs two decades ago. Two terms and two failed runs for governor later, the Republican is now a Buffalo rancher in Jackson County. Beaupre did not write any major bills during his first months in office, but he says he was still able to grow Colorado's influence by getting assigned to the Transportation Committee. Me and my office worked very closely with the other six members of the House delegation to make sure that our requests for highway improvements, airport improvements, the, uh, the RTD improvements, that all of that was taken care of and funded as best we possibly could negotiate. Having another Coloradan on Capitol Hill, he says, also helped secure a new VA hospital for Aurora. But what in 2022? Will one more congressional representative from Colorado make a difference in an already chaotic chamber of 435 ambitious people? We don't really demand as much attention as, say, California or New York or, you know, some of the other very large states. Seth Maskett is a political scientist at the University of Denver. But it wasn't that long ago. We had just six districts. Colorado is one of four states west of the Mississippi River gaining an additional seat. And experts like Maskett agree there are advantages to that. Colorado's representatives will soon serve fewer people, making it easier to respond to constituents who often flood their offices with calls, letters, and emails. I think more importantly than the size of the congressional delegation is that it's seen as a as a competitive state. And that's unique. Most new districts are drawn by lawmakers using their power to maintain the status quo. That's the case in Oregon, where their new district leans toward Democrats. In Texas, it heavily favors Republicans. An independent commission drew up Colorado's 8th district, and partly because of that, it's projected to be a toss-up. This seat may well be the majority maker seat. With Democrats controlling Congress by just eight seats heading into next year's midterms, state party chair Morgan Carroll says it's already getting a lot of attention. It is that close that it could even come down to one seat and it could be this one. Carroll is framing it as a choice between continuing President Biden's Build Back Better agenda 
or reverting back to the Trump years. I'm not sure we've had a district outside of maybe the sixth congressional district, even compared to Denver, that has had this much of an opportunity to powerfully direct the fate of the district and therefore the future of the state and frankly the future of the country. Christy Burton Brown also sees this as a big opportunity. You are going to see Republican candidates be able to run really good races in the 8th CD. Brown is chair of Colorado's Republican Party. She thinks they'll regain some control of the state's delegation and even the balance of power in D.C. Democrats are failing the nation. Joe Biden has extremely low approval rating. Kamala Harris is even lower. Um, We see Jared Polis and Michael Bennett sink in every poll here in Colorado as well. Brown and Carroll both predict the campaign for the 8th Congressional District will focus on local issues, despite the chance for the race getting so much national attention. Seth Maskett is not as optimistic. Elections just generally have been getting more nationalized. This is a trend we've seen in the last few years where House races, Senate races are increasingly focused on national issues. And at his ranch in Jackson County, former Congressperson Bob Beaupre says he'll be watching closely, and others should be as well. We're in the middle of a problem because of the supply chain. Crime is a big issue right now. Climate is a huge issue. All of those are influenced by public policy, politics. Both Democratic and Republican candidates have already announced their campaigns for the new district that covers areas north of Denver up to and including Greeley. Primaries for those candidates will take place next June. I'm Scott Franz at the State Capitol. This is the first of a series of stories we'll have on the new 8th Congressional District this month and into early January. You can find more at KUNC.org. This week marks one year since the first COVID-19 vaccines became available in Colorado. A lot has changed in that year. Many of us were able to get back out and enjoy activities that had been shut down by the pandemic. But despite the progress made, the virus and its variants are still spreading, and case numbers and hospitalizations remain at high levels. We wanted to check in with one public health expert who was there from the start, on the front line of the pandemic and the vaccine rollout, Dr. Mark Wallace. Wallace currently serves as the chief clinical officer for Sunrise Community Health, executive officer for the North Colorado Health Alliance, and a member of the Banner Health Board of Directors. Dr. Wallace, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. We are at the one-year point of the COVID-19 vaccines being available across the country and here in Colorado. Talk about how it felt for you when you learned the first vaccines had been granted that emergency use authorization. It was the light at the end of the tunnel. The tunnel had been pretty long and pretty dark. Um, And so when vaccines were approved and were being shipped, it, it gave everybody that kind of uh, hope and optimism that we were going to be able to get through this at some point. So it was a very needed light at the end of the tunnel. Because there was a lot of exhaustion among healthcare professionals at that point. Absolutely. When what you when all you have are sort of the preventive measures that some folks, you know, do better than other folks do. And you just keep seeing wave after wave after wave of people um, getting critically ill and dying. It's exhausting. It's really hard. And the vaccine said to people, we have a way out of this now. Now, as the Polis administration outlined the rollout plan for the state, how it was going to look, who was going to be prioritized, 
What was going through your mind then? How were you strategizing about getting this done here in northern Colorado? Yeah, what we wanted to be sure um, were a couple things. One, that it would be widely available um, because um, we know that folks feel differently about who they want to receive their vaccine from. Folks also have different uh, lifetime schedules. Um, Some people might work all day long, and if vaccine was only available during Uh, business hours, Monday through Friday, that was going to leave some people out. We had to worry, was everybody going to be able to get to a vaccine? Meaning, did they have transportation? Were they healthy enough? What about homebound people? So we took a really broad brush to say, we want this as widely available as possible so that everybody gets an opportunity to get there. And that in the front of the line will be the people who are most vulnerable. So that if we knew there was going to be limited supply in the beginning, Let's be sure that the folks who are most likely to get seriously ill and die get to the front of the line. Um, and so that's the way we looked at it and asked for um, you know, support and knowing how many different partners were going to make this available and what did that actually look like from you know, a tactical standpoint, um, what hours, what location, um, so that we could begin to get the word out that this is where you go to get vaccine. Well, I want to talk about who initially wanted to get the vaccine and those who were a bit more reluctant. About a year ago, there was some polling that showed only 60 percent of Coloradans planned to get the coronavirus vaccine. That number was slightly lower among Black and Latino people. First of all, how did those initial numbers kind of stack up uh, to the situation today? Yeah, no, you know, it it continues to be um, something that we want to be certain we're addressing. Uh, There are people who are hesitant. They were hesitant for a couple of different reasons. Um, There are some who were hesitant because it was new and they were just like, well, it's new and I want to wait and watch what happens when other people get it. So I don't want to jump to the front of the line. Um, That can be, you know, that's understandable. Some people just don't like to to be the first person uh, to get a new drug or a new technology. Um, The other part um, were for people who were concerned because of past um, history. Um, You know, we have to recognize that not everybody has had the same experience with, um, uh, you know, vaccine that is really supported by the government. Um, We can understand that for many Black individuals and their family history, um, they look at Tuskegee and say, why should I trust that this is going to be good for me? Um, And so we had to be certain that our messaging was not one flat message that was supposed to resonate with everybody. We had to be certain that we found a message and a messenger that would be trusted by different people. You were the director of Weld County's Department of Public Health and Environment until May of 2020. And Weld County saw very high infection rates among Latino communities early on. How did you view this hesitancy and what was your approach to overcoming it? Yeah, you know, we expected to have some of that hesitancy there, um, again, just out of a a couple of different things. One concern from just historical um, issues that uh, that left them uh, a little uncertain about whether they could trust it. Number two, was it going to be available where and when they could get access to it? If you've got somebody working long shifts, um, someplace we have to be sure that we can get it to them so that um, it's at a time where they're not going to lose pay for leaving work. So what we did is to be certain everything was translated um, so that uh, the information was available in Spanish um, or other languages. We made certain um, that who was approaching and working um, specifically with um, both 
direct to, to the community, but also with employers where there were large numbers of folks who were Hispanic, for example, to say, could we come on site? Could we do a mobile event? Or could we host a special event at a location where we would normally give it, but it's a special inv- event um, that we're going to do in partnership with trusted people? You know, So for example, we um, set up events that really it was the Hispanic women of Weld County who led the whole campaign. They're the ones that did the marketing, the outreach, the communication with the community, and it was hosted at Sunrise. Um, And all of the folks um, who were the leadership inside um, Hispanic Women of Will County, they were present. And so people felt comfortable. These were folks from their community um, that they trusted. Um, And so we did a variety of direct-to-employer, using trusted groups and parties in the community, um, and being certain that we were sensitive to hours and language that the materials were available. And I wanted to ask a bit more about those large-scale vaccination clinics that were happening at Sunrise Community Health. Uh, what went into their creation? Was there a model for putting those together? You know, that's one of the places where all of our work in emergency preparedness and our collaboration with local public health over the years made those fairly easy to stand up because all of the templating of how do you do it, how do you decide the workstations, the flow, the safety, the staffing, all of those templates were essentially ready and could be adapted for a mass immunization clinic. And we had tested them before. I mean, you know, this isn't the first time we've had to do uh, mass vaccination. Um, and so they were able to be stood up pretty well. I will tell you, because I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be fair to say that it was just, you know, flip a page in a book and it happened. <laughs> Recognize this was happening on top of everything else going on. So for example, Sunrise still had to see all of the patients that it would normally see. It was running respiratory clinics to evaluate and still to this day runs respiratory clinic to evaluate people who have illness. And this got added on top. So it meant people were working even longer hours. Well, I just want to share, I got my vaccines at Sunrise Community Health, and it was a very, very smooth operation. That's good to hear. Um, I think that our model um, is one that people have uh, really uh, paid attention to and said that uh, we have excelled at the way we did it. Um, We brought on extra staff, um, but the expertise was there from the beginning because we had we had done, you know, done smaller scale ones um, until this day. So right now in the office that I'm sitting, um, we are running uh, walk in clinics for vaccination to this very day um, in that mass vaccination model. So people can come in and get it uh, with very little barrier. We'll hear more of my conversation with Dr. Mark Wallace in just a moment. And we'll hear about a new effort by the state to prepare more Coloradans for employment in STEM fields. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Today, we're marking one year since the first COVID-19 vaccines arrived in Colorado with Dr. Mark Wallace. He's a family physician and was the public health director in Weld County through the early months of the pandemic. He's now the chief clinical officer at Sunrise Community Health. It is fascinating as we have these conversations coming into the end of 2021. I just realize how long we've been doing this, um, and it's almost Hard to believe that we've been at this kind of pace for the amount of time that we've had between that first case showing up in Colorado and then you know where we are today, and to look at sort of what did we what did we bring to help fight this as we were as we were going, vaccines were the key thing 
And I have to tell you that from a from a, a standpoint of the science and somebody who's a physician, the our ability to to create these vaccines this quickly, and it, you know, such an incredible match for the for these viruses, even as they continue to mutate. It's just remarkable. I mean, that is science that countries like the United States and other leaders in research can only bring to to the world when these types of pandemics happen. And so I just find it from a science standpoint to be remarkable that all of this research that we have been doing for 20, 25 years around messenger RNA on getting experience on, you know, producing vaccines in large scale without that we would be in a worse position than we are today. So I, I just have to say it's remarkable. You know, and I also have to reflect that even with um, people's concerns that some still have, these vaccines were robustly studied, robustly tested. And our system of oversight in this country with essentially three independent bodies that take a look at what is happening with the development of these vaccines is just also remarkable that it all happened. And it all happened in a safe way to balance getting new vaccine out to where we need it, which is in a clinic, in somebody's arms. When we spoke to you in May of 2020, you noted that the fight against COVID-19 was a marathon and not a sprint. I think that has certainly played out. I am wondering what you've learned since then. Is there anything that you will take forward into the next public health crisis, which hopefully won't happen for a very long time? Uh, you know, I think I would change the reference to a marathon. It's now an ultra marathon. Um, so we're in even better shape um, than we were, you know, because we're, we're running for a longer period of time. Um, you know, I think that what we have to be prepared for is, uh, and, and we see it in a lot of our conversations today, we have to have models of care that are exceedingly adaptable you know, we have to be able to flip in a very short time and say, we might need to have half of our patients seen via telehealth. So we've installed in our rooms the ability to convert from a brick and mortar place where people walk into to say the rooms are now adapted so that we could turn into telehealth. Our clinicians could sit in the building, but we could see people um, via technology. We have to be certain that the design and flows through our office accommodate the ability to add on things like mass distribution of something, a vaccine, a medication. So how do we design our facilities to store that you know, amount of material to be prepared? What spaces can we use? Are they adapted in advance for us to be able to quickly turn them over into these kinds of spaces that we have? Um, and then do we do things when we get back to what people used to call normal operations where we periodically refresh ourselves. So what if there's not a pandemic, but we decide to offer a mass back to school vaccine clinic and we do it in the model of, let's just test if we still know how to do a mass vaccination clinic. Let's just give regular vaccines on a Saturday where we offer it to 500 people and see how well we do. So we wanna we want be sure we continue to practice what we've really gotten good at, you know, so that we keep that muscle memory to say, okay, we can do this. We can turn this over in a few days and be ready to go. And for you personally, I know that you left a, a position as a very outward facing public health official, and then you came back to work in health. How do you feel about that decision now? I am really glad that I was able to make the switch. 
um, that I had the privilege to be able to do that. Um, I have had a very full career. I love being in healthcare. It is just something that I have wanted to do since I was very little. I, I, I joke with people that I knew that I wanted to be a physician when I was seven years old, partly because my mother had to take me to the doctor so much because I was always, you know, needing stitches or something to happen because I was a robunctious kind of a kid. Um, rambunctious kid. So um, I love it. And I love being back on this side of the delivery system. Um, I love being with those who provide direct care, but also focus on population health and are really here to be mission driven to serve those who have harder time getting to health care. So it is exciting. I am glad that I'm doing it um, and I'm going to stick with it for, for a while longer. Dr. Mark Wallace is Chief Clinical Officer at Sunrise Community Health and a member of the Banner Health Board of Directors. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Science, technology, engineering, and math jobs are booming in Colorado. Last year, the state had the fourth highest concentration of STEM workers in the country. To help prepare more homegrown talent, including women and people of color, the state is increasing access to bachelor's degrees. KUNC's Stephanie Daniel has more. Adina Chugtai studies engineering at Front Range Community College. And when she's at the Westminster campus, you can usually find her at what she warmly calls the central hub. The central hub to me is the science classrooms and the cafe. That's maybe not the central hub for everyone, but certainly for me because this is this where I spend most of my time. This is the 25-year-old's second stint in college. After a tough time in high school, she enrolled at the University of Colorado Boulder, but it wasn't a good fit. I remember just having a constant knot in my stomach. Anytime I had to go to class, anytime I had to like talk to my parents about homework or assignments, it was just, it was not my thing. After taking a break, she eventually dropped out. Then in 2018, Chugtai was diagnosed with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. That was like an absolute 180 in my life. All of her academic struggles started to make sense after that, and she was ready to give college another try, but not at CU. I was nervous to get back because those lecture halls are, are really big and really intimidating. Her parents got their degrees from community college when they immigrated to the U.S. from Pakistan. And with their encouragement, Chugtai enrolled full-time at Front Range. And I got straight A's that semester, and it felt so good. Even even like now, like years later saying it, it just feels incredible. Chugtai found her community here, but she also found something else a new educational pathway. Next spring, she'll be one of the first to graduate with the new Associate of Engineering Science degree. It will allow her to transfer to a state university as a junior to pursue a bachelor's degree in engineering. With this new degree, it's a clear what we would call 60 plus 60. Rebecca Wolf is vice president of academic affairs and online learning. Which means the whole first two years that they take at the community college will transfer to the four-year schools and all of the credits will transfer so students are not wasting any time or wasting any money. Statewide transfer agreements between community colleges and universities have been around for a decade. And there are over 30 degree opportunities from agricultural business to theater. Engineering has been in the works for years, but there was a major issue 
Each school had their own unique curricula. We kept struggling because we were trying to fit, in essence, a square peg into a round hole. Then an engineering faculty member reached out to her counterparts at Colorado State University, the University of Colorado, and Colorado School of Mines. With that faculty support and that faculty input, we were really able to create a degree that all of the colleges felt that they could support. The AES degree will be offered at other community colleges once they sign agreements with the universities. Front Range has formalized transfer partnerships with several schools, including the mechanical engineering program at CSU. We love transfer students. That's Anthony Marchese. He's the associate dean for academic and student affairs in the Walter Scott Jr. College of Engineering at CSU. They've already demonstrated that they can succeed. They have the math and the chemistry and physics out of their way. Mechanical engineering is a high-demand, high-wage job. Probably 50 percent of the graduates from CSU in mechanical engineering probably end up working in the aerospace sector. Another benefit of starting at a community college is cost. That's why Anthony Evans left CSU. My first semester, I spent almost 16 grand between housing and schooling. Then I went to Front Range and spent a third of that. He enrolled at Front Range's Larimer campus. After getting the AES degree, Evans plans to transfer back to CSU. But in the meantime, he's enjoying community college. You get in there and it's a class of 20 and the teacher actually knows your name. It's, it's way better, I think. And that's more how I learn anyways. It is just these little cubbies along that window. Back at the Westminster campus, Adina Chugtai points out her favorite study spot in the library. It's a window bench with a view of the Rocky Mountains. It's really beautiful. It makes me, like, happy. Front Range also has an agreement with Colorado School of Mines, and Chugtai will start there as a junior in the fall. She's a little nervous about returning to a university, but excited to major in quantitative biosciences and engineering. For something like engineering, that has been a notoriously white male-dominated field. As a young brown woman, I feel great. I'm on this path. Front Range will soon sign agreements with the University of Colorado and eventually add AES degrees in civil and electrical engineering. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll hear more about how the slow start to the winter could have lasting effects on the region's water supply in the coming year. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 